out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. Thank you for that update. Hello, this is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we like to bring you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade and sometimes beyond. This is one of my interviews with the poet Jules, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, literally about love, life, love and poetry, and much, much more. Um, And this is the beginning. It's good to start somewhere, isn't it? Um, Where I asked her about her background and her formative years. And this was her reply. Jules, it's over to you. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I was born in 1955. So, you know, I was growing up during the 60s, really, in the late 60s, 70s and so. Um, And basically, it was a lot of... uh, uh, Well, for me, it was like... um, there was a <laughs> from an art point of view it was going to the big poster to the independent poster shop in Harrogate where I lived as a kid and seeing all the Fillmore East posters oh. and um seeing all the psychedelic posters there was famous Jimi Hendrix one and you know stuff like that which they had on they had for sale of course and they sort of it was very loose in those days and we all just used to sit around really in this poster shop <laughs> excellent look at look at pictures and swap records and then we'd go to wh smith in town where they had listening booths which nobody now would understand in a million years no but they were these like silver perforated hardboard listening booths and you used to go in and listen to music and you'd buy things like i don't know you'd buy harvest and you'd buy curved air and you'd buy led zeppelin and you'd buy you know whatever you could afford and um or one person would you know we'd all club together and then one person would have it per you know for a length of time and and that's what we used to do that's what we were kind of teen um art music and 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 in my case writing geeks yes so were were you sort of from that sort of 60s period were you sort of aware of the the sort of the beat generation with uh, that kind of Alan Gin- Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and um... oh um no no, not at all. Not at all. No, I mean, I, I would have thought they were old men. Yes, and they probably you know, were. I mean, sure they weren't. Well, they probably weren't, you know, but like at the time, I would have thought that's what I would have thought. Yes. No, we, we the the people that I, you know, was responding to were the Mersey poet. Oh, right, Roger McGough. Really, you know. Yeah, Roger McGough and, and people like that, because although Roger McGough is very conservative now in terms of, you know, how he's presented or whatever, he wasn't then. And yes. people forget this, you know, it was all very exciting and, and it was because it was sort of almost realistic and about real, you know, lives. Yeah. And we could relate to that. But I already had a very heavy background of Dylan Thomas and Wilfred Owen and people like that. So uh, it was a, it was a strange, you know, and and, and heavy mixture. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, and was there any particular book or novelist that you came across or sort of, yeah, poet? Well, you just mentioned them, actually. But, you know, just I just wonder if there yeah. was a particular book that you had sort of went, my God, that's amazing, the language. Well, I found, uh, I did find, I mean, I did find a poet called Tom Gunn, who was English, but now I think he lives in San Francisco, if he's even still alive, I don't know. I might be slandering him there, but... Yes. Um, and he wrote about motorcycles, and at that point, I, you know, he, he was um, 
he's a gay man who was into sort of leather and stuff like that. But I mean, that didn't come across in his poems so much as he wrote about being tattooed and he wrote about motorcycles. There's a very famous one he wrote called Blackie the Electric Rembrandt. And another one called The Boys, which is about a motorcycle run and how it is. But they're very, they're very technically, uh, academically poetic. Right. So it was a, com- a combination of this kind of very quite dry, almost technical academia, academic type of writing poetry and the subject matter, which was considered terribly shocking at the time. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's. He was a big influence. The couple of poems that I'd managed to find of his, and because I was already involved, beginning to become involved in motorcycle gangs, um, I thought this was like this is this is it. This is how it. This is what I've got to do. Yes, because I sort of come from the the depths of East Anglia, where sort of a motorcyclist and the love of sort of basically status quo um, was was everything, <laughs> you know. And uh, yes, you never yeah. met, you never sort of said anything negative about status quo. You would just get beaten up. And um, no, I see. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they seem to their followers oh. were just really sort of quite hardcore. So yes, heavy. You know, it was the, from the countryside. You know, heavy metal was well. I mean, the early seventies. It was still developing with Black Sabbath's first album, wasn't it? Really, yeah. and, and the early, you know, um, led. Well, I was going stuff. to I was going to gigs as well. I mean, I remember going to see Black Sabbath at Leeds University and when Ozzy was wearing uh, that that white fringe jacket. Nice. You know, like, and I remember going to see, you know, Led Zeppelin at uh, St George's Hall in Bradford. My poor old dad that drive us, then hang around in Bradford until it was finished, and then drive me and my friend Penny back. <laughs> you know, and we we went to see everybody. We went concerts all the time. Uh, in Harrogate, I remember going to see David Bowie when it, the Harrogate Theatre when he had a bubble perm and was wearing a caftan. Blimey, that was the hippie period. Yeah, and and we thought it was rubbish. <laughs> and and it, it, that it, awful. It probably, it probably, <laughs> yeah. it probably was. I mean, it would, you know, you know, because I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm obsessed with two artists, David Bowie and Lemmy. And um, bizarrely, they're both the same age, and they died virtually at the same time. But they both used to say when they, 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 they were interviewed, you know, who their main influences were, and they'd always say both of them. Little Richard was their kind of first name that would proper. Well, proper. yeah, but he was, you know, that Little Richard was, I suppose, you know, like he's generationally too. You know, he was up too old for us. We used to go to a teen disco as well, which was quite exciting. And they used to play all this sort of... The charts were much more eclectic then. And, and up until about, you know, uh, quite recently, the charts were very, very eclectic. So you, you could have, like, uh, Electric Blue in the, in the charts at the same time as, like, Cliff Richards, at the same time as, you know, Mrs. Um, Mills or something, you know. They would all and and some and quo and you know and uh, the crazy world of Arthur Brown, you know, and and th- this was all a complete mashup. Yes. And in in a way that I think people can't imagine now because the charts are very corporate now and you know they're very sort of dictated and that music is very sort of uh, is much very much of a business now. In those days, it was just like all kinds of mad stuff used to be. Well, it is on together. Yes. Well, and I... of course we loved. I mean, I loved T Rex. I absolutely loved T-Rex. I still do. I know. And I I don't know why. (laughs) No particular reason. I just do. It had a groove, didn't it? It did have... It It really did, yeah. It had a groove, yeah. But they were much more sort of... um, They were much more dangerous than today's pop stars. They they were, you know, we didn't... We thought of them as, as sort of 
fancy boys from London who were very, you know, in the know. And we didn't consider them like, you know, pop stars as such. No. But then but they were they certainly were in the charts, yes. Yes, well the early seventies they were you know, he was he was well and truly there alongside people like Slade yeah. and, and obviously yeah. the Swede. Because yeah, actually Slade I, I couldn't stand, I can't stand Slade. No, no, I don't I can't him. stand Noddy older. No, it's he's he's hard I'm to sorry, Noddy, but I just no. No, it's never gonna happen. But, no, but it's never the, gonna happen for me. But but, it, you know. but the interesting thing, it probably I don't know you it was Alice Cooper's schools out which we had a sort of like that yeah. was one of the first anthems that made us kind of think, Oh, that's mm. very interesting. Mm. So then as we were trucking through the seventies with great excitement and had no idea what was coming after seventy five Yes, you you actually you then get married, don't you? Which was quite. Um... Yes, I did. I married one of the Slayton slaves, who are the local sort of HA type type group. They're not HA; they're different. They're different, but um, they were the local outlaw bikers, and they had, you know, no, they, they were a very well established outlaw motorcycle gang. And he was a member of that. And I, yeah, I got married. Yeah, yes. married when I was nineteen or so. Yeah. And at that stage, were, yeah. were you all? Were you all sort of the writing? Was that sort of also developing at that that point in your life? Well, yes, I do remember him taking me to do a poetry reading once. God love him; he was a very sweet man, um, and he looked like a great big Viking with with auburn hair and a beard. You know, so he's like quite unmistakable figure. And he taught me to this poetry reading on the bike, and then and then I did my poetry reading, and I could see him slowly because he'd been at work all day. And he, uh, and he was slowly, slowly falling asleep. <laughs> All through my reading, I could see him struggling to stay awake. Yeah. And at the end of it, well, I was really good, really good, like that. And I thought, you didn't actually hear a word of it, did you, my love? <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He was very good about it. You know, I'll say he's good about it. But, you know, he tried to take an interest in it. Nice. And um, But he was really, I think they were all a bit more interested in the fact I could draw. And this has always been the dichotomy because I've always drawn and I've always written. So, so that, it's always sw- one swings and roundabouts. Some people really like the drawing, don't get the, the writing, and some people really love the writing and the drawings. Just a sort of well, okay, that's nice. Yes, that's quite interesting. But it's good to mix, isn't it? It's good to have both going on because you never know. Yeah, it, it, things. Well, come... you know, because if one if one doesn't, you know, isn't doing so well financially, then the other one will. Yeah, and, and did vice you versus though? And did that sort of, I mean, when you were, you know, young, you, you get married, which is kind of exciting, but then also part of a, a motorcycle gang. What was that like? I mean, did that, was that just like, wow? I, I don't know. Uh, it, 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 it's very difficult to describe it because it's, it's partly because my family was very dysfunctional. So what I found in that motorcycle gang was some kind of ersatz family. Um, they're very hierarchic, you know, and it's very sort of structured, and so. Uh, but you do feel like you're part of a family. But it, there, there a lot. There's a lot of violence and there's a lot of drugs, and it's. Uh, they weren't like this, you know, fun gang of like guys riding around together. There was a great deal of things which were very, very, very difficult and dark and difficult to process. And um, I wrote about it a lot in in my novel Billy Morgan, and they. And people often go like, well, you know, is any of that true? And I go, well, actually, all of that's true. Yes. And they just look, sort of look at you because it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to come back to any kind of 
normal life afterwards. And I don't know that you ever can really. Yeah. Not not entirely, you know. So what happened? Because then... you. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say what what happens. You know what happened when that relationship finishes, and then you sort of step away from a group like that. Well, you're not supposed to really, and also I was regarded as something of a princess rather. Uh, uh, so I was a bit of a prize um, at the time, although I didn't see it myself, to be honest with you. Um, um, uh, but uh, when it was obvious that, you know, I was uh, splitting up with my husband, it was, it was amicable. He was, as I say, he was a very nice guy, loved animals and stuff. So he was a nice bloke, but, you know, we'd got married very young, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happened was that the other members of the gang, um, basically, it was quite sort of medieval. They approached the president of the of the gang at the time and made their offers, you know, which uh, which you know which one I was supposed to like to to go with next. And it was and I was as I say quite valuable. So there were some considerable offers, you know, like being taken to America by your own Harley, have it shipped back, you know, everything paid for, brand new set of leathers. So it was almost like, you know, sort of having a dowry offered. Yes. <laughs> and But I didn't really, I was not that I didn't like them. Some of them were nice lads, but I, I didn't want to be married to them. I didn't really want to be in the gang anymore. Yeah. So I basically had just met Justin. So we, you know, I thought, well, no, actually, this is something I want to do something else now. And culturally, that's so, cool. that, how that started. Yes. And is it? They, let, they, had to let, they had to just let me go. Yes. And also, I mean, I wasn't, you know, like in everything that I've done, it's it's if you're a very driven, ambitious and aggressive girl, which I was um, probably to a degree still am, then you're always going to get, you know, on up sort of annoying to some of the men. So for some of the men, it was, you know, yes, you know, she needs to go because she's just setting a bad example to the other women. Yeah. So it swings and roundabouts, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, God, it sounds like one of those strange films that we used to watch in the. Um, uh, Very much like there's a brisky point, only with more violence. Yes, <laughs> but did but did the the it's kind of curious. Did the did the women? Did you bond with the other women in the group and sort of? Not have... really. No, it's very competitive. Right. My God. It's very it's it's very um, conservative and competitive. The women see each other as competition, um, and the president's wife, of course, is queen. Wow. And what was she like? And the president's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. You really wouldn't want to have crossed her. Blimey. I mean, just... Um, just, just <laughs> and the... he liked me as well, which was, which was more to the point. He didn't fancy me, he liked me. Yes. And, and that's very difficult for them to process. They can't really process the idea that, that people of the opposite sex can like each other. He just yeah. thought I was funny and clever. Wow, that is quite amazing. And then over the years, have you sort of like heard what's happened to the people that you used to hang out with? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are they yeah, still yeah. alive yeah. or did they? Some or... of them are, yeah. Some of them are alive. One of them's alive despite all odds. Yeah. He's like, at some point during his, his life, Pete, he's um, broken his neck, he's broken part of his spine. He's been um, a lifelong speed addict. He's had terrible, he's crashed his vehicles more times than that, fell off a scaffold, and he's still alive. <laughs> it's, it's like we have a joke about him that he basically have to beat him to death with a stick in the end because he's just not going to die. 
Yes, well, absolutely. And, you know, whilst I used to see one of the other guys really, you know, um, regularly. But the rest of them now, it's like they're, they're a new gangs and it's a different time. And those lords of the street are not, you know, they're not anymore. So they're still going, but they've turned into a sort of neo-fascist organisation and spend a lot of time in their clubhouse oh. moaning. Oh dear, that's not good. <laughs> that's so, what happens. Yeah, I know, that's, that's not good. Um, so look, they, so when you started performing live, what? Did, how did you? Yeah. Um, how did that sort of uh, process go? I mean, well, remember, I started performing live when I was about six. <laughs> so, so you were well. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't anything new, you know. Um, and then when I, I used to do readings when I was about eleven and stuff and stuff, and then and then when I wasn't a kiddie anymore, it was I was about sixteen. I started doing performances with a local poetry group called Cracks. That's K R A X, and um, they uh, there was just a load of lads, and they decided they needed a girl. <laughs> so, so I don't know how I heard about it, but I, I heard about it. I thought, oh, they need a girl. I'll do it because you know I'll be. Really, I, I, this is what I want to do, and I think they were just horribly bemused because I because they were nice poety lads, you know, who wore sort of corduroy jackets and. I quite fancied themselves as beatniks. Yes. And I just wanted to make it into this glam, sub T-Rex kind of performance. And they were like, with guitar players and things, and they were like, oh my God, what's this? <laughs> so it was quite funny, really. And I was oblivious. I was like, no, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. You know, it's like costumes and stuff, you know. God, that's excellent. <laughs> they were horrified. Yes, probably quite intimidated, weren't they? I just thought, well, I wouldn't. I, but again, I was oblivious because I was um, I was oblivious to the idea that they might have been horrified or, or like, or intimidated. I just thought it was just, oh, this is going to be such fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So then, as, as we <coughs> as we were trucking into, sorry, the... I've still got a chest infection, so I'm coughing like. Yes, I can hear. I hope that's okay. Um, but no, it's, oh, it's fine. Oh, good. I, I think that's what our cat's got, actually. That's why he's on steroids at the moment. It's a long story. Oh, yeah. My, yeah, no, I've had a cat on steroids. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's okay until you have to give it to him. Um, but then, yes, as, yeah, so, because so, I, what I realised coming from the countryside, and you had that very tribal thing, like, you know, you had heavy metal and status quo, and, and if you liked, you know, like um, two-tone and the beat, you would have got beaten up if you had omitted it. But then with punk coming along, that was also something that I remember people from the heavy metal world didn't like. So how did how did that sort of go with no, you? No, they didn't like it. No, they didn't like they it. Didn't did like they didn't like it at all. They didn't get the no, they but didn't. I did immediately. <laughs> yes, I remember Because so I remember being I remember being on the back of my husband's motorcycle and we were we were riding past this pub and they were all stood outside. The sort of proto punks of Bradford as it were. And I thought, what is this? I want this. Yes. Um, and then I heard the music and I want I wanted the music immediately. So the Bradford... And, yeah, sorry, go on. No, sorry, I was just going to say, I just remembered, we once went to the One in Twelve Club in Bradford. Yeah, for sure. And that was obviously an iconic venue. So, yeah, so were you completely drawn to the I don't know, mate, I'm banned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got banned about three times from One in Twelve. I think the last time they banned me, it was for negative body language. Oh, <laughs> that's quite good. I was saying... <laughs> I don't know what that means, actually. Uh, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I thought that's a, a stumped me. But then, yes. Yeah, so as as the punk movement started and you sort of went into that world, did you did you sort of 
get sort of more inspired with writing at that stage and sort of art because obviously that was a yeah. whole, that felt like a whole new you know forget Roger Dean posters it was going to be something completely yeah. different wasn't it yes it was and it was all about like pulling everything apart and deconstructing things and and making things you know just just destroying things to build things Which and was... it was about it, uh, it was also about like feeling I mean, Roger Dean, marvellous covers, all the rest of it, but they're very cold. Do you know what I mean? They're very beautifully done. Yes. But there's not a real lot of emotion in them. Um, people have emotional associations with them because they love the record. But from an art point of view, they are beautifully done, and they're very, but they're very, very uh, cold. Um, some people love that in art. It's not something that I like. Yeah. Um, and this gave me the chance to sort of basically just pull absolutely everything apart and, and make something new and different. And yeah. that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do that in writing and in drawing. And in, and in what I was wearing as well, and in what I looked like, and in what I, uh, how I just was in the world as well. The whole thing was all a massive mix up. It wasn't. You didn't do it at the weekend. You did it 24-7, 365. You know, you did it all the time. This, and it was a way of thinking and a way of approaching things as well. Yeah. So the whole thing was just a colossal bloody art project, really. And did you feel more, did you feel more comfortable in that community? Um, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I'm sure there were people that thought I was an arsehole, but, um, because people always will think that. But... Um, I had Justin and, and we were so close. We were like twins. We were like identical twins. So yeah. you always felt like you had somebody you, was, you were firing off of all the time, you know, who was there to like, and you know, we used to finish each other's bloody sentences and things. We were like two bodies with one mind. Yes. And it was, so that was very exciting to, to be around because it was just constant. It was nonstop. I mean, you wake you up at three o'clock in the morning to talk about something and that's fine. And you'd do the same. You know, you'd write a poem and you have to wake the poor bugger up at four o'clock in the morning and say, listen, 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 you know. Yes. <laughs> and the whole house was full of people like that. We had a shared house, slum, horrible, you know, disintegrating house. And it was just, Full of people like that. So, were you living in Squatland at the time? No, it was a rented, but in Bradford, there's no point. There was no point squatting because the rent was so cheap. Right, because I know, I know I had friends. And literally, it was pennies if you were all sharing. Yeah, and the gas bill was very, very low. There was no central heating, was there? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we didn't have central heating. No, we had um, what we used to call Bradford central heating, which was a gas fire in every room. Yes. Yeah. You know. It's good. And I used to like turn it on and fall asleep and then wake up like half dead. <laughs> the gas fire had been on all night and eating all the oxygen in the room. God, I know. They were great. <laughs> but then They're never passed health and safety now. Ever. No, God, I mean, it's amazing we're all alive. Because during that, that, yeah. that, that sort of early 80s period, because a lot of the bands I've interviewed, there was, there was that kind of period where they would get together and they would have like 12 months kind of fiddling around playing guitar with a band. And then, you know, John Peel would give them that sort of single, you know, the, the spin. And then they'd yeah. get a session and then they get the John Peel, you know, that would give them, that session would give them the sort of excitement to do an album. So 
And at that point, there was a lot, most people, well, not most, but a lot of people were unemployed because there was kind of, that was almost, I remember. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, we were unemployed. Yes, that was almost like, yes, well, no, that's what you do when you leave, you know, that, that stage. <laughs> yeah. And there was also Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance and all those other exciting things. Well, we that. never had that. Oh, not the we Enterprise Alliance. Just, yes. I was just on the dole. Yeah. I think there was a, one that came in for a period of time when they were trying to get the unemployment figures down. So you could sort of do this enterprise allowance and you'd be in uh, one year. You could just be self-employed on anything for a year. And um, and that just made the figures. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, knew people that, I knew people that did it. I didn't do it. I worked as a life model at Leeds Poly. Right. So you were... You Alongside were... Speed in Wells at one point. That was hilarious. Oh. And, um, you know, we all got scut jobs like that. I did that job quite a long time, and and Justin busked. And it he all... went out all over the north of England in subways and made money. Yes, and then all when... in pennies. I have to add. Yeah, there wasn't much else about, it, was there? Really, there was a ton of coppers, and we all have to count it when we got home. When he got home. Excellent, excellent. So when did, when did you make your first recording in in a studio and and sort of think right, I'm going to commit this to some physical product i was at a gig i was do, i used to do loads and loads and loads of poetry gigs i mean you know, all over the country all the time i've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gigs and this one was in covent garden at the i can't remember the name of it now it was a famous venue in covent garden anyway it's tiny like all london venues you know they all sound really famous and amazing and when you get there they look like a dank cellar Yes, I know. But oh, it's gone out of my head what it is. But anyway, um, Army was playing and I went on before them and I remember having a temperature of 102 because I had another chest infection. I get them all the time. And I was drinking Benelin on the stage to try and keep my voice going through this gig. And so I was completely off my box and it just thought everything was hilarious. And came off stage and I'm sweating under my clothes. I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm really ill. Yeah. And this man came and he said, I want to give you a record contract. And I just went, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> and he went, because I thought he was taking the piss. And and he went, no, I really do want to give you a record deal. And and I was like, what? what? And it was Edward from um, Abstract Records. Yes. Good old he man. signed me before he signed New Model Army. And the Three Johns. You were you were his. Yeah. You were basically the beginning, weren't you, of that yeah. that period? But I was his. I was his maverick, peculiar novelty act, really. Yes, but at that... you know, and uh, and it was a friend of ours um, who said, um, "I know this bloke called Jar Wobble. You need to do the music with him." And I said, "Who the fuck is Jar Wobble?" <laughs> and he then he showed me, and I went, "Oh, okay, yeah, sure." Yeah, I'll take it. And that's how I met Wobble. And, that. and then we might recorded it in Michelangelo's studio in in London because that was a friend of Wobbles and he liked it because it was a dub studio. So my my first record sounds really dub. It does, doesn't it? Because it was a heavy it was a heavy a heavy dub studio studio. Michelangelo was a heavy dub producer. He was the brother of Linda Lusardi, the famous glamour model. Oh yes, Linda. God, I have not heard that name for years, decades. Yeah, actually. the beautiful, the beautiful Linda Lusardi. She, he was Michelangelo Lusardi, her brother. Right. My God. Did you suddenly have that? Moment? I never met Linda. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you, you also at that stage, you and Justin, 
did sort of have an amazing look, didn't you? You did, you know, it's like one of those, yeah, I mean, for, for, yeah. Sort of, for punks, you, you did. Well, all... I, lo- I love making things, you see. So it's like I still make costumes, I still make outfits, and, and I, but I loved it and, and, and loved making things. And so, and, and the idea was always like, how cheaply could you make this? But it's got to be functional because there's no point making something that he goes on stage in. And because stage is very hard on clothing uh, that he'll destroy in like 10 minutes. So I used to take the things that I used to do for the Satan slaves. Like we used to get a pair of old jeans and a lot of secondhand leather coats out of Oxfam and things like that. And you'd literally patch sew leather onto those jeans. So I remember doing this and I would make him leather trousers by basically doing that again, just like we did in the gang. And then I could like destroy, you know, and, and remake another leather coat for his uh, the rest of his outfit. Or I would, you know, sew things onto a T-shirt or paint a T-shirt, you know, famously, which I painted, of course, was only stupid bastard use heroin. Because mm-hmm. when on the top of the pops, when they were all wearing only stupid bastards T-shirts, I had hand painted each one of those individually. Blimey, that's a, that's an amazing. So you were right at the forefront of art and and fashion. In, in yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I can't, again, I was oblivious. I didn't realise this, but I, you know, and I got picked as a style icon by the NME, and I was like, eh, all right, <laughs> <laughs> if you say so, you know. Did that? Did, how did Cause you? Because I am not in the. I'm not really in the world a lot of the time. I'm in some other world a lot most of the time. I only basically come into the real world to have to like pay the gas bill and stuff. Yeah, it does happen, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a whole. It's been. A, it's been a whole life of art. Yes. And and people go, you know, you're really really lucky, and I go, yeah, I am really really lucky, but I also work really really hard. Yes. It's and not... so it's it's a com- it's a combination of things. But it's not really luck, is it? <laughs> it's, like, it's not really... You got... it, it, well, it is. It's, it's meeting the right people. You know, if, you, if I hadn't met Justin, I don't know how it would have turned out. It would have turned out somehow. But yeah. would it have turned out like this? I don't know. You know, if Justin hadn't met me, would it have turned out like it did for him? Because what I had in the way of impetus and drive and aggression, he he's not that man. So I needed to get his band out of Bradford as fast as possible. Because to me, although I was wholly ignorant of how any of this worked, remember, when, you know, they, I said, oh, I'll be your manager. I had no idea what I was talking about. Because there wasn't, there's no school for management of bands. You just have to think, how will this work? And I remember sitting in a cafe in Bradford, writing it all down on the back of an envelope that I had in my bag with a stub of pencil, thinking, how can I make this last forever? Because, you know, I do, Justin needs to be a musician for the rest of his life. Oh, my God, I've got to make this work and jotting all these notes down about how you could make it work. And because I didn't know any, you know, music business managers or anything like that, I just did it how I thought it would work. And obviously it did. <laughs> yes, but you, but your 80s was a phenomenally um, productive time. It I was mean... phenomenal, phenomenally productive on, a, on every count. Yes. It was, it was quite, um, it, was, it was like... You, you you couldn't have a drug that was that interesting. No, not at all. It was you like... know, really, kids <laughs> couldn't. Because you, it you... was non, it was non-stop. There was never a breather. It was constant. Yes, because you had two albums, but New Model Army had 
about three or four, didn't they? Including the the the, the, yeah. the ghost of Cain, which had the famous fifty first date, and then yeah, and I which do... wasn't written by him. You know that. Yeah, that was written by Ashley Cartwright, the late Ashley Cartwright, of, who was in a band called Shakes and Keithley. But then in eighty, 80... Ashley, Ashley had a lot of problems, and Ashley. Uh, uh, was a great creative uh, force, but he had a great many problems. And he, um, at one point, was in dire need of, of cash. So Justin said, well, we'll record this one of yours and I'll give you all the royalties, which he did. Blimey. Because then, quite, I don't know if you were there, but I, I sort of found myself going to Berlin in 87 and I saw David Bowie, and the army were there yeah. supporting him, and yeah. and and thinking, blimey, yeah. not long. Was that the glass spider, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it wasn't yeah. Bo- wasn't Bowie's best, but at the same time, I, it was still a, quite a gig for the army to to have managed to um, yeah. get onto. Well, I'll tell you something about that gig as well, because we were all at the backstage, and the back because he built this glass spider set. And I think they spent all their money on the set, frankly, because I don't know why he would have had, rec- you know, um, backing tracks of harmonica players when he could have just had a real one. But whatever. <laughs> um, but it was all um, scaffolding at the back. And if you climbed up the scaffolding, which, of course, we all did, you could see over the wall to the streets beyond. Yes, Eastern. And when, when Army started, there was like three or four people there. And we could see them. And then by the time they were into their third song, there was like about 50 or 60. At about four, we were looking at two or three hundred. And at the end of Army's set, it was packed as far as you could see. They were all behind the wall listening. The East Berlin, East Berlin punks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and just people, just, just people listening. They couldn't see it. They might be able to see some lights or something. <clears throat> they couldn't see it, but they could hear it. And were you? I mean, that was an amazing moment, wasn't it? Actually, I remember it was a beautiful mm. night. Actually, in fact, it was a nice weekend. Actually, somebody. Yeah. Else, um, yes. You didn't stay and watch Genesis then. No. <laughs> but I think that was the following night. That was a yes. Anyway, I, I was there during that sort of weekend, so it was like, I think you bought a ticket and went to all these gigs. But anyway, the David Bowie mm. one was quite good, and um, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. seeing the army in in such a yeah, it's in front in front of the Reichstag, wasn't it? That was um, yes, it was yeah, the, the iconic look. So during that period, we were all very excited about the you know SWP. We were eating TVP. It was all red wedge. How were you sort of fitting in with all the kind of excitement of that? period as well because because obviously there was a lot the of socialist workers party were very difficult because because they've always been deeply bloody misogynist and so you know as far as the socialist workers party were concerned it was like girls went up the back and made sandwiches and i wasn't having that um so i didn't you know get on with them at all particularly but i've always been a lifelong socialist you know as everyone knows but um so we didn't really have a lot to do with with those kind of, uh, you know, those kind of socialist parties. They were very disapproving of us, very disapproving of army, very disapproving of me. And it was like, oh, we don't really need your approval. And they were like, well, what do you mean? Of course you do. You need our approval if you want to get anywhere. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're on about. I did the women's red wedge because they asked me to do it. Um, and it was grim. I did Red Wedge at Bradford at, at St George's Hall. I remember they came and they said, "Oh, well, you're from Bradford. You have to come and do 
something. I was like, yeah, sure, fine, no problem. And I think it was Paul Weller and there was uh, Jimmy Somerville and there was all kinds of people there. And and they took, the organisers took me to one side and said, look, we've heard about you. And that's never good when you say that to an artist because you think, what do you mean by that exactly? So I was a bit like, what? And they were like, um, we don't want you to say anything political and say nothing about the local scene. And I went, Are you, is, is that a joke? And they went, no, if you want to go on, you can't, you've got to promise not to say anything political, not to make any statements and just do you do your gig and don't mention that anything of, about local politics because the Lord Mayor is in the front row. Okay. So um, the local scandal at the time was um, was that, that we had kids off school with um, <coughs> with uh, uh, dysentery and kids that didn't have shoes uh, who were you know like off school and and um, the local uh, councillor just spent sixty pounds a piece on um, fancy ashtrays. <laughs> so we were all horrified and. Uh, I went on stage and the first thing I said to the Lord Mayor, I said, was the fucking ashtrays, was it worth it? This kid's off school with dysentery in this town and you've spent £60 a piece on ashtrays. And, and the whole place erupted, of course, because it was worth the crap of people who all knew about this. And I got absolutely caned when I came off stage. <laughs> wow. that's um... Never asked me to do it again, I noticed. No. But they did ask me to do the women's red wedge. Yes, which I did, and which was which was just um, that was like hell in a boarding school, really. Blimey! But what well, the only good thing about it was I met Sandy Toxvig, who was a friend of mine ever after, so that was good. Yes. So what? So as a fan, you're always sort of on the outside looking into this world, thinking, "God, it must be fantastic." But then it it um, then when you hear stories, it's like, "Oh, it wasn't that fantastic?" It is. It is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. It is fantastic. It's just not always fantastic in the way that the audience members think. Yes. It's a different sort of fantastic to what you think is going on. I know. But it's like having a line manager or something. You know, somebody giving you a bit of a hard time before you step out onto the, yeah. on the, on the stage this isn't kind of what you expect. And probably um, no fan would expect that as well. So it's quite surprising when you... Hi. Well, they're always trying to control me and what I do because they think, you know, I presumably they think, they still think I'm a loose cannon. Yes. I can't be relied upon to be on message. And and the thing is, I will be on message if I agree with it. But I won't pretend to agree with something and I don't think anyone should pretend to agree to, with to something because they want to get on. You know, there's always that dreadful phrase, if you know what's good for you. Yeah, that's not a good phrase, is it? Never a good phrase, no. <laughs> it's just, it's never, never a good phrase to hear, is it, in no. any situation? Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just don't need it. So, <coughs> so as as we, as yeah, because the one the one thing that sort of um, I know it's, it's probably you have quite a different sort of trajectory than most people who they have a five year period, you know, being in the band. Almost ninety yeah. percent of them, they you know, by the second album things aren't going terribly well. I didn't realise this as a fan. Actually, I always thought that must be great fun, but the second album is often kind of destroying them. And if anybody ever toured America, oh, they... the di- well, the difficult second album. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> but... capitalised. It's always capitalised. 
Well, <laughs> it's, I think it's the fact that everyone's got really fed up with each other and there's been a complete lack of money yeah. and, and sort of people thinking this hasn't progressed very well and everyone's getting on my nerve. I think there's also spending far too much time in each other's company in small vans. Yeah, because, because people forget these, but these men are not friends. They're not buddies. They're not, they're not like, they're not being like this. I know people who look at bands and think they must all be mates, you know. But they're not. They're men who've come together in a common cause. So they don't know. They didn't probably know each other before. Or maybe one did, or you know, one or two did. But mostly, they don't know each other. They've answered the advert in the music shop or in the back of the enemy. Yes. And they've come together in a common cause. So if anything, they're more like a cadre in the army. I know. Yes. Then, then they're not all best buddies, you know what I mean? And a lot of the time, most of them won't spend any time with their bandmates when they're not actually working. Yeah. Sometimes that can be a good thing. I think it's when they've, they've sort of, there's, there's so much lack of money that they have to, <gasps> they have to live together. That doesn't work. No, I well. thought it was a mistake. You don't want that. <laughs> you don't want, you don't really don't want to live with the bass player. <laughs> no one wants to live with That's the bass player. That's never good. <laughs> no. So how did never, you never ever a good idea? So how were you coping dealing with with sort of just life as as an artist throughout that sort of yeah that, that decade uh, and then we were very 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 poor. We were very poor. I mean, I had like one dress dress to wash and one dress to wear, and I'd like long since sold all my wedding jewelry, you know, from my first marriage to pay for the band. And, you know, I'd sold my books, I'd sold, you know, you get cupboards, you know, but you have to do it. And you've had a very poor diet and you were living in very damp, very bad conditions. And it, you know, it affects your health and, you know, all of this. So you, it's it's not, you know, I, I know people now go, oh, you're really spoiled. You've had this life, you know, you've, you've never had to struggle for anything because all they see is my little terraced house where I live and it's all nice you know because I've lived here for 40 years so I've made it nice in an arty kind of way but it's not expensive but it's cosy do you know what I mean and this is all that they see and this is all they've ever seen because I've been here for so long so they don't they have never seen the way that we lived then in damp in vermin infested um, falling down, the roofs leaked, you know, there was no hot water, it was, uh, we had no money for food, we had no money for, you know, for anything. Yes. And everything had to be ploughed into the band, always, because how else do you get to London to play that gig unless you've got enough money to get a renter van from Rent-A-Rec? And there's literally a company in Bradford called Rent-A-Rec. God, I remember a company And you've like rented, you rented a wreck. For five pounds. And you wreck a van. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's hideous van, you know, and you prayed to God it got there and back. We actually did one of their first gigs was like in a renter wrecker, and we were like halfway down the motorway and it died. And we were to play the Hope and Anchor, and there were supposed to be people coming, you know, we finally managed to screw people to come to, to get enough people to come, and we were like, oh, this is disaster. So we had to get the transporter man and the transporter man came and he went, well, you know, where you, you look miserable. You lot, where, where were you going in this? And I said to him, well, we were, it's their first big gig in London. And he said, really? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, we can't spoil that. And I went, yeah, but we, what can we do? He says, I'm going to take you down on the transporter and then I'll bring you back. And that's what he did. Wow. <laughs> that's very... He took the van down on the transporter, told, I don't know what he told his boss. 
I can't even imagine. So yeah, I think he just he was he was a bit older than us, but I think he was still a young guy in his head. Yes. And I think he just thought, bugger it. Could be funny. Yeah. And he came into the gig and he was clapping and going, aren't they great? They're great, aren't they? They're great. Don't you think they're great? To all these indie music industry people who thought, well, what the fuck is that nutcase, you know? And he's going, oh, yes, bad clap, clap, clap. Marvellous, marvellous. Go on, lads, go on. You know, like this. And then at the end of the gig, he loaded us all up on the transport to him. We're about to travel. Excellent. It's almost like a scene from comic strip, bad news, isn't it? Yes, seriously. That's exactly what it's like. All of these things, like, that and like uh, uh, Final Tap, it's all real. It is all real. It's it's just. It is all real. It, we have all been lost in the bowels of some hideous venue that we couldn't find the stage. <laughs> so then, I, I mean, saw the I saw the I saw the premiere of Spinal Tap in the UK, and it was very interesting because the the you know it's a very funny film. But the gags, the laughter was very sharply divided between industry people and non-industry people. And non-industry people were laughing at some things and industry people were laughing at others. It was very interesting because to a lot of us, a lot of spinal touch really painful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, so, but to other you know, to people who aren't involved in it, it was hilarious. And we were like, oh, my God, no. You know, fought in the puppet show. Oh, that hideous gig at the you know at the army base. <laughs> we've all done we've all done stuff like that, you know. And it's like when it's happening, it's like oh, I don't want to go home. I remember being in a venue with another little band that I was I've worked with, not army, with one of the other small bands. And when we got to the venue, there'd been the toilets had flooded, so all the venue floor was covered in raw sewage. And and we were like, well, is it off? And they went, no, I'll just I'll just sweep it up. And it blew it with a big broom, basically swept all this crap literally out of the venue. And I remember sitting on the on a bench with my feet up on the bench, thinking, I just want to go home. <laughs> I yeah. don't have to do this. I just want to go home now. But you can't shift it to the gig. Yeah. Because <laughs> you said you wouldn't. The punters came in, and they had no idea what they were walking on. Hmm. And I just wanted a Dettol spray. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. So then as we we, yeah. we, we trucked into the 90s and, the, and you'd been sort of obviously doing your, you know, the art and the band as yeah. well for, for so long. How were you sort of coping emotionally doing all that? Because it's kind of a lot to take in and you, you don't start with a, a bit of paper. And, well, you, I know you mentioned I didn't it. start on a good place anyway because I'd had such bad experiences as a girl that I already had complex post-traumatic stress disorder and I suffered very badly from depression. Um, so I, and I had no, I had no therapy, no treatment, no nothing. And basically because the life that I'd led in the gang and then in, in the music industry, it really was put a rod up your spine and shut up about it. So there wasn't any suggestion that you went and got therapy or counseling or help or anything like that. It was basically you just march or die. So, that's that's all that you know that was very difficult for me so i was you know uh, i was quite ill for a lot of it but it, it, it's difficult to explain to people because they go well how did you make all this stuff if you were that ill said, because that's how, that's just how i am yes but did you have a moment you know, when when you just thought actually i need to uh get this sorted no 
Oh no, I did. I did once. I once went to. I I saw. I didn't really know anything about mental health services or anything like that. You didn't want to go to the doctors because the first thing the doctor wanted to do was give you ECT. I'd had the experience of that being, you know, trying them trying to give me ECT when I was married. And I just, I never wanted to go there. So you really didn't want to go to the doctor because once it's down on your notes in those days, it was a stigma. Yes. And nothing was ever believed. You Nobody believed a word you said about anything ever since after that, if you, if that was the case, you know, if that went down on your record. So you didn't really want to talk to anyone about that. <clears throat> so I tried try going to a counsellor and I had been in because um, I wasn't married to Justin. This is what people forget. We weren't in a romantic relationship. So um, I, you know, we had our own partners, albeit fleetingly, and our main loyalty was to each other. But people, you know, assume, and people assume we're back to this thing about people couldn't understand how two people of the opposite sex could be that close and not be a couple. So, it, but it and it is weird, and I can never explain it entirely. But that's just I, people have to have to accept that's how it was. So I'd had some very, very bad, very abusive relationships because of being completely fucked in the head. Um, and then, and this was all very difficult. And I, I saw a thing about counselling in the, in the paper, so I went. And this woman just listened to me for about two and a half minutes, and then put her hand up, said, "I can't help you. You need to go to the working class women's group in the university because this is not this is not." material that I can deal with so it was very off-putting to me I really didn't get any help till about 10 years ago when my father died and I accidentally I went for grief counseling because I thought I was just going to die if I don't and and um, I struck very lucky with uh, the counselor that I got on the national health he was wonderful and all the stuff that I'd never told anybody about it took two years and I remember saying to him at some point, you know, uh, Alan, is it normal for this to happen to a girl? And he, he, I just remember his face. He kept his face really straight. Um, he's a very experienced counsellor. And he just went, no, it isn't. And I said, what about this? And he went, no, that's not either. And we need to talk about it. Would you, what do you feel about this? Would you like to talk about this? And it all came out. He's a wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. Yes. Saved my life. And did that, but it, that was not until that was that was eight years in, in therapy then. God. And then after that, did things shift and change for you? Not really, because you're never cured. You can't be cured of CPTSD. Um, but you learn, you learn that you you learn that this was done to you. This is not somebody, not mental, you know, as we used to say. You're not you're not crazy. You're not, you know, mad. It's things terrible, traumatic things were done to you. And this is your way of this is your mental way, you know, your mind's way of dealing with it. So that for the, the victim of or survivor of uh, domestic violence, sexual violence is very important because society tells us women should blame themselves. Did you lead him on? What were you wearing? Were you out late at night? What did you say to him? You know, did you uh, did you trigger him in some way? Well, you shouldn't have nagged him about that, whatever it might be. Why didn't you just leave him straight away? You know, and it's none of these things are easy. And it's none of them, you know, are as simple as people who have not had this experience 
believe it to be. So, which is one of the reasons why I'm patron of a, of a domestic abuse charity because I think they need all the money they can get. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to help help women and children and other victims of, of domestic violence. Yes. And but unless you've been there, you can't understand it. But I wouldn't wish anyone to go there. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, it's just um, it's a difficult water to navigate, isn't it? It's a difficult and uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and I I never, you know, people just go, I don't want to know about that, and I go, do you know what? That's fine. I don't want to know about it. I spend a lot, you know, I've I've spent many days wondering if the guy hadn't tried to rape and murder me when I was fourteen, for example, what would my life have turned out like would I have gone to university you know perhaps might I have done an English course might I have become an English professor you know or a teacher of English might I have had you know a family or all kinds of things it, you know it's like you go along in your life and then one thing just derails you into something else if I hadn't had these experiences would I have been the artist that I am but would I trade the art for not having had those terrible experiences. It's just very difficult, and people, you know, don't want to think about it, and I don't blame them. Yeah, I, yes, it's just um, God, it's a hard one, isn't it? When things happen when you're young, yeah, or any age, yeah, when you're very young, and when, especially in the seventies, you know, if you re you remember what it was like, and if you can imagine being a girl in the seventies, you couldn't. You couldn't tell anyone because you immediately got the video and people go, why didn't you go to the police? And you think, don't be bloody ridiculous. You can't go to the police. Your reputation, which was everything, would be ruined. So you just had to suck it up and you thought, you can't tell your parents. God, you know, not my parents anyway. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have told my parents. Yes. Because I would have been blamed immediately. And then there would have been all this drama. And my mother, who was the, who was very, very beautiful, but an awesome screaming narcissist, would have made it all about her in a drop second. And in a funny way, I love my father very, very much, although he was completely devoted to my mother, who was just bonkers. Um, I was trying to protect my father. This is what people forget about young victims. They go, why didn't you tell your parents? And they're trying to protect their parents. And it's it's a really beautiful and sad thing. Here are these children who have been so badly hurt and their first thought is, I must protect my parents from this. I love them. I can't have them exposed to this. I can carry this. And of course, the parents, the first thing the parents want is they want their children to go to them, or most people's parents would. I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's always a bit of a naff thing to ask, but I would, I often ask, because I always ask it, um, what, what would you kind of, say to an 18 year old self or you know that those kind of life lessons that you think oh god actually that would have that would be a good thing to have whispered into someone's ear or even my own ear i just kind of wonder oh, and that's a bit of a crap yeah i do know what i would have said because i've thought about this i don't think it's naff at all oh good <laughs> Can you, I, I think it's like i think it's a reasonable thing i mean i'm 64 i think you do think at this age you do look back and think what what could i tell that girl and 
I think what I would have told my younger self was that you are beautiful, you are clever, you're not ugly and stupid like your mother told you. You are beautiful, you are clever, you are loved. You go and get it. Go get what. Go get that art thing. That would just do it. Yeah. Don't listen to anyone else. Don't you? Don't need anyone else. You can just do it. And I think that would have made a lot of difference. Yes. So does that mean that when you were making your art, that you were never particularly satisfied with it? I've never been satisfied with anything I've ever made. It, honestly, it's terrible. <laughs> I would have everything back in two months and fiddle with it. it, it, it it's it's desperate. It's <laughs> everybody just look, that I know laughs at me all the time because they said you're looking at it again. Stop looking at it. Yeah. Or the album comes out and I'm looking at it and they're saying stop looking at it like that. Just enjoy it. And I was going yeah, but look at that colour. It's not quite. That colour's not quite right. It's too late. It's been printed, and it just—I remember when Thunder and Constellation came out. The printer sent, you know, five hundred copies or something. And I sent them all back and said, "Can you do it properly?" And they would be horrified. Yes, they love that, don't they? But I give it—you know—and they still didn't get it right because it was the days before digital. You know, it was like by eye, and I couldn't understand why they couldn't follow the Pantone colours that I'd sent them. And I was always sending things back and, and always fiddling with things and like having things done. And, and even when a poem's been recorded, like I listen to it, you know, two months later, and think, oh, God, why did I do that? You know, I just need to do that differently. So it's a constant life faffing with stuff, really. Yes. Tattooing's awful. Tattooing's terrible for me. I have, try and get people to come back in, you know, so I can just mess with things. I would have people come back in four months later and let me mess around with that tattoo yes but obviously they just think i'm crackers <laughs> but then yeah justin's just the same justin's the same he's no he's no better than me <laughs> he's always going oh god could have done that like that and i go no you've just it's gone now but we don't look back we always look forward yeah but at the same time the two of you are still making and creating so you must occasionally look at each other and think god we've done all right haven't we we're still we're still on that journey well we said that today we went for we went for some bacon and eggs in the cafe today for breakfast and um we don't share a house anymore or anything like that um and because there's been a rift unfortunately but um we went and we were there and we were going Somebody had said to him, because he's doing a lot of interviews, you know, for the 40th anniversary. And some, there's somebody always asks, says the same thing. Every journalist always says the same thing. You go, well, you know, New Model Army, 40 years, but, you know, you were, you've never really been a successful band, have you yet? How have you, how have you kept going? And we always just laugh our heads off because we haven't had a proper job for 40 years. This has been our job. As far as we're concerned, we haven't had to work a straight job for 40 years. That's the biggest success that you could possibly have as an artist. Yes. I'd say it's a bit rude as a question. <laughs> it's, a stupid, it's a stupid question, but they always ask it. And, you know, because you haven't been like, it, you aren't corporate and you don't have, you know, you haven't become, um, you know, um, uh, uh, Metallica or something, you know. And you're just thinking, what are you talking about? 
shit jobs we had to do. We haven't had to do a shit straight job for 40 years. I can't think of being any more successful than that. That is the, I haven't had to get up in the morning for 40 years. Yes. Nobody's told me what to wear for 40 years. You know, nobody's told me to, you know, do some hideous job for 40 years. I've been spared all that. And as far as I'm concerned, and as far as he's concerned, that's the biggest success that we could have asked for. Mm-hmm. We've got, to, we've been allowed to do our art, un, un, you know, undictated to. Nobody telling us what to do with it. Nobody saying you have to do it like this or do it like that. We've been doing pure art for forty years. What could be more amazing? I know. It is. I mean, it's it's kind of... Um, an... I know. I don't think it's amazing. I just, I'm a grateful. Every single day of my life, I get up and I'm grateful. I go, thank you, thank you, thank you, universe. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this. Yes. Like... However shit I feel, you know, or whatever, underneath it all, I'm always going, thank you. Well, gratitude is one of the most important states to have. Well, I I just think, it's amazing. I'm just I'm amazed at it. I wrote it all down on that envelope. How can I get the band to survive for forty years so that Justin will never have to have a straight job because God love him, he's completely unsuitable. <laughs> you know, at one point his training dictated that most of his university um, mates would go on to be social workers. That was kind of where their course was sort of leading for a lot of them. Yes. And I thought the people of Huddersfield or wherever, I cannot inflict Justin as a social worker on them. It's cruel. <laughs> yeah, you know, he can't. We can't do this. He's just completely unsuitable for anything like this. He he's just got to do the thing that he can do, and I've got to do the thing that I can do, and yeah. I can get the thing for him. And if I get the thing for him, I can get it for me. Do you find it's that's easy? What I, that's what I did. Yes. But do you put yourself forward more than anybody else now? I do more now. I didn't then ever. Because that was not the way I was brought up and it was very, very difficult habit to break. I always put everybody else first. I don't tend to do that so much now, but I've still got it in me. I'll still, you know, do that. But um, I do sort of realise now that it's always been very difficult because women's art and women's work is never as valued as men's not really it's like saying you know it's like they do this thing about oh you're a woman writer and i go no i'm just a writer oh you're you're a poetess no i'm a poet oh you know women artists always tend to contrast i'm not a woman artist i'm an artist so you're always fighting against that that idea that you're really not yes as good as or not quite as valuable as and, you know, you need to be very self-deprecating and you need to be very sort of, you know, not blowing your own trumpet and not, you know, acknowledging your gifts because that's not very seemly in a woman and all this sort of business. And I'm basically blown that out of the water now. But I'm 64. I'm not going to live forever. And if people will forget what I've done, I'm not, I'm not having that. Because this has been my life, you know, and all right, I'm just a person who lives in Bradford who makes drawings and writes, but it's still important to me. And I think I've achieved 
quite a lot of very interesting things. Yes, well, absolutely. And have you managed to, because that's one thing I've noticed and spoken to a lot of people, is kind of archiving all the work and going, right, I must just... Oh, oh I'm shit at that. I never kept anything. It's an absolute bloody nightmare because people go, you know, we could do this book and you need to get this artwork and have it photographed. And I said, that's long gone, mate. <laughs> oh, what? Did you keep every T-shirt you ever did? That? No. No, not at all. You know, the only reason I've got some copies of my first poetry book is because a friend of mine found a box of them under his bed. Yes. <laughs> About six years ago. He went, do you want them? I went, yes. <laughs> yes, please. So do you have copies of all your poems? No. <laughs> no, of course not. I don't even have copies of the records. Well, no, it's in no interest to me. Once it's done, it's done, it's out, it's gone. I've forgotten about it. Yeah. I never read it again. Well, I did read my novel about a year after it had come out I remember reading one of them and and then it was just a nightmare thinking I ought to rewrite chapter four <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be yes Could... so you know I don't Justin doesn't listen to his stuff either and people sometimes go if you go somewhere they go I've pl I'm playing your record because you're here and you're just thinking oh please don't do that yeah <laughs> that would don't do that please can we have some killing joke or something <laughs> yes, I guess it's so. Then, so so yeah. new new year, new decade. What what have you got sort of lined up as you sort of um, you know hit this next period? Well, um, obviously I've got a lot of art to make. Obviously, army's forty years. So there's a lot of planning and various events and projects to do. There's like two, three projects on the go at the moment that I'm coordinating. Um, it's for me, I've got a lot of commissions in art. I've got poetry, not so much. My poetry is not very fashionable at the moment. So I don't do the gigs like I used to do. Um, you know, it's, it, poetry is very, very, very clicky and fashionable. You know, it's what is the fashion at the moment. And mine's not the fashion at the moment. Um, that's fine. I don't really care. I'm right in the middle of writing another novel, whether that will get published or whether I just, you know, Back off the publishing industry completely and just do it myself. I don't know. I'll do one or the other. Um, there's, uh, uh, I've got, I've got to go and do a, a big Spanish um, dark wave festival in October, which is a bit mental because one of my tracks, the stand, I didn't realise this until some couple of years ago, has been an enormous success in Spain for the last God knows 20 years or something and and really famous Spanish DJs are always remixing it and it's played at every disco, you know, every sort of dark disco or dance party and stuff like this and this I, would, I had no idea about any of this none Oh well that all makes then, sense because on Spotify that has had 130,000 Exactly. Yeah. Somebody said you need to look on YouTube. Look at that. That's your track. And I went, it's had a million views. And I couldn't understand it. I just I couldn't. I thought, oh, it's, it must be an error. You know, there must be a, some kind of mistake. Yeah. Or they think it's someone else or something. 
And and it isn't. It's all true. In Spain, that is a very beloved track. And I, I have no idea why. Why that one? I don't know. I've never spoken to anybody. Just used to get these, and then I started getting these things from these really respected DJs and, and, and producers going, you know, I have done this remix. Do you mind? What do you think of it? And I was thinking, eh? <laughs> Okay, that's lovely. But a bit weird. Yes. So I've, I've got no idea. It's completely left field. Anyway, they contacted me and they were like, oh, it's royalty. I was like, it was like being royalty. It was like, you think you might even consider? I was going, yeah, of course, I don't mind. And they were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then they put the poster out immediately. She's coming, she's coming. And all these Spanish people on the bottom were going, oh, I can't believe we're going to see her live. And I was thinking, oh God, she's, I'm 64 now. I'm not going to have red hair or anything. Do they expect this? You know, the be, you know, the beautiful girl to appear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how am I going to do? How am I going to do it? So Justin's now desperately running around trying to find the backing tracks. Excellent. From the record, because God knows where they are. We've tried DMI, they don't have them. And next we'll try Cherry Red, see if they've got them. We tried the old engineer; he didn't have them anymore. Um, and if the worst comes to worst, we'll just have to re-record him. Was Jar on that? <laughs> God, it, 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 you know, it's it's completely weird. Yeah. It's, it, it's so left field as to be like, that is really bonkers. But for some reason, Spain embraced that track. Yeah, well, they they do because, um, like I said, on I you know I was looking on Spotify and you know it was like. I, I thought it must have been on a soundtrack of something because it just had so, so many... No. So Spain... No, they just used to always play it at every dance party in disco. My God. Go Spain. That's great. Well, that's... Oh, no, I love it. I love... Well, fortunately, I love Spain, so that's fantastic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of projects <laughs> coming up and, and this year's going to be full. Yeah. This is good. Yeah, and, this and year we... will be cool. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, Jules, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank it's you been, very much. It's thank been you amazing. for your interest in my work. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And I'll tell you when I put it out, and you can always, you know, link it to your... I'll share it around. If you if you tell me when it's going out and give me the details that somebody would need to to listen to it... Yes. ...then I'll put it out on, on my social media, no problem. Brilliant. Well, Jules, thank you ever so much, and thank you for everything and, and all your work. It's been amazing. And, uh, oh, well, thank you. And all the best for the future. Take care of yourself. And yourself. Okay. I hope the cat's all right, mate. Yeah, me too. Little chap. Try a pill injector. It's the only way to get it down the big lad. Oh, I've, yeah, okay. So this is, um, is this the thing that the vets have where you just kind of push it down? And it's, it like an, it's, like, um, it's like a plunger. You put the, it's got a little rubbery end and you put the pill in the rubbery end and then dip, um, put, um, put the, you know, it's like, an, it's like an injector pen thing. It's yeah. like a cross between an icing bag and a, and a syringe. Okay. And it's all rubbery, so it can't hurt him. And you put that down his throat, basically, or at least as far as you can get it, and then inject it in really quickly. And, then... and withdraw your hand before he severs it at the wrist. Nice. Do you still have cats? I have the big man, don't I? So he's he's my um, constant companion. Nice. So his name is Scout Stormcloud, and he's a nine-kilo male. Beautiful. We love cats. He's beautiful and huge and, and ridiculously foppish. He's like Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen in a cat skin. 
Well, nice. I remember Lawrence. And <laughs> excellent. Yeah, he's more famous. He's much more famous than I am. He's got his own fan club and everything. Excellent. Well, that's cats for you. <laughs> They're so special. Yeah. No, he's on. He's on social media. He's got his own little clique. You know. Yes. <laughs> he's probably big. <laughs> excellent. Well, look, Jules. Thank you ever so much, and take care of yourself. Pleasure. Okay. Okay, and you, mate. You okay. take care. Bye.